已经有一阵子我们没有在你们当中因为Ezra弟兄还需要介绍我们 And uh, I apologize for that We always enjoy meeting with brothers and sisters so. 我们真是很喜悦跟弟兄姐妹一同聚会 And it's always wonderful to break bread with brothers and sisters 我们能够跟弟兄姐妹一同拨饼也是美好的 And I guess since it's been a while since we've been here I'll bring greetings from the saints in Manhattan 我们来到这里我们也真是将曼哈顿弟兄的祝福也带到这里 Whether you know it or not your prayers for our little group in the city um, has brought about much fruit 你也许不知道你们在这里的祷告为曼哈顿的弟兄姐妹真是有很大的帮助 And we're grateful to you for your prayers 我们真是感谢神为了你们的祷告 We're also grateful when our brothers Maurice or Lucio or Daniel come and share with us and encourage us with the Lord's word 当你们的Maurice弟兄或者是Lucio弟兄到我们当中 他们能够分享主的话语是何等美好 And we also praise the Lord for the recent gospel work that's been going on here. 我们也为在这里当中最近的福音工作，我们也感谢神。Our brother Dana gives us updates all the time, and um, we're just so full of praise for the work that the Lord is doing here. 我们的Dana弟兄也经常的跟我们讲提到这里的状况，我们真是为了神的工作感谢你。This past Thursday evening during our prayer meeting, um, we also prayed for. That the Lord might allow the gospel work to flourish in, in our little group there. Well. I think there's been a heart for gospel outreach recently, and I'm sure part of that is inspired by what the Lord is doing here in Flushing. And so um, I'm grateful for the Lord that uh, we can have such fellowship. Um, this hymn that we just sang is, is um, one of my recent favorites. Um, it speaks to my heart because I think, you know, when you look at the stanzas, there's a progression in our spiritual pursuit. We start out as spiritual infants and we're very selfish, if you will. Uh, we might say something like stanza one, uh, all of me and none of the 全是我，没有一点是为你。全部是为己，不是为你。And then as we progress, as the Lord reveals things to us, we say, well, some of me and some of thee.哦，当我们有一点进度的时候，我们就会说一点点为己，一点为主。But in stanza four says, none of me and all of thee.然后到第四节的时候说，没有一点为自己，完全是为主。And I think that's the goal in our spiritual pursuit. Christ might be all in all. Um, this morning I wanted to share a few thoughts from the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1 and we'll read the first seven verses. Haggai is a pretty small book, only two chapters, and it's found uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. It's a thin book, so it might be difficult to find, but I'll give you a second. Haggai chapter 1. I'll read the first seven verses. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, 
The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, the harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 大力乌王第二年六月初一日耶和华的话借先知哈该向犹大省长撒拉铁的儿子索罗巴伯和约萨达的儿子大祭司约书亚说万军之耶和华如此说这百姓说建造耶和华殿的时候尚未来到那时
to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24. Our Lord reminds them that these are but signs. These are the beginning of the birth pains. And he reminds us that you're going to see these things before the return of the Lord. And these physical signs should also remind us that a spiritual shaking is going on as well. And I think it's during this time of shaking that we really need to remind ourselves of the Word of God. We need to remind ourselves that there's a rock we can stand on. And we know that our Lord Jesus is that rock who is firm and unshakable. I bring up these words from First Timothy and particularly that phrase firm foundation because this is a theme that we've been sharing on in Manhattan in the past few months. Uh, many brothers have been sharing on what they think this phrase means. And we've been sharing on various aspects of this phrase found in verse 19. And in light of the natural devastation that we've witnessed in the last few weeks, I thought it might be appropriate to bring up this theme with everyone here as well. And I wanted us to consider what we think it means to have a firm foundation. And also, what are we building upon this foundation? We know that when we construct uh, buildings, that um, a firm foundation, preferably one that is built upon the rock or a bedrock, will stand when there is shaking. And here in New York, you don't experience earthquakes a lot. But where I'm from on the West Coast, we encounter earthquakes. In my lifetime, I've been, I've been through uh, two earthquakes. Fortunately, neither have been um, of huge devastating force. Uh, now my wife, she went through the 1989 uh, San Francisco earthquake and she'll tell you that it's a pretty terrifying thing. And when I was in graduate school, I experienced um, an earthquake in Seattle and and it felt like kind of this gentle swaying, but it was still pretty terrifying because the entire building was rocking. Uh, and one of the first things you that comes to mind is how stable is this building we're sitting in? And is this building going to collapse on top of this? When the shaking comes, uh, that reveals how strong a foundation and how strong a building uh, you're residing in. Okay. You know, brothers and sisters, do we sense that there's a shaking in our time? Especially in recent days. You know, do you feel like the things in this world lack stability? And certainly if you don't sense it in our natural world, then you haven't been paying attention to the news. You know, there, when we see that devastation that went through Texas and went through Florida, 
I feel like there should be a sense of awakening within. And we should look towards the Lord's return. And then do you also sense that there's a shaking in our society today? Does the Spirit prompt your hearts that we're indeed living in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot? um, hearing our brother Stephen Kong share twice this summer. And in both of these conferences, he challenged us um, with a question. How many of you guys also got a chance to hear our brother's challenge? He asked this question in, in both conferences, and the question is, are you ready? Perhaps at Harvey Cedars, he'll, he'll challenge us once again. But I heard this question that he posed twice, and it's been resonating in my heart. Especially given these natural disasters recently. Are you ready? Am I ready? You know, if the Lord were to return today, am I ready? Or if the Lord allows some shaking to occur in my life, am I ready? What is my life built upon? What are the contents of my life? Is it wood, hay, and stubble? Or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? And the things I've built in my life, are they going to withstand that shaking or are they going to crumble? And Paul's exhortation here in Timothy is that we don't trust in worldly riches but put our hope in God. So is God my foundation and my anchor? Or do I put my trust and my hope in my savings account? My possessions or my career? Do I put my hope in my family? My house or my car? You know, these things are all going to pass away. I think uh, many folks in Houston and in South Florida will probably be able to relate to Job in the Bible. You know, their houses, their cars, their possessions, many of them were wiped away in the matter of hours. And some really tragically lost loved ones. So are these worldly things what we put our hope and our trust in? Is it these worldly things that we're building up day by day? So the challenge that the, the Spirit has been prompting in my heart is what am I storing up today? Is it something that's perishable or something that's imperishable? And what would happen if there's a shaking in my life today? And the Lord's word keeps resonating within me. Consider your ways. 
主的话一直提醒我，要我啊思想我的道路。you know, during the days of Haggai and Zechariah, the Lord challenged his people with this phrase. We read this a couple of times in Haggai chapter 1. The Lord of hosts says, Consider your ways. Actually, I believe at last year's Harvey Cedars conference, our brother Kong uh, launched his message with this phrase from Haggai. And I've been considering this word in my life in recent months. You know, the Lord desires to dwell among his people. Uh, the Lord is pleased when His people walk according to His ways. Uh, and during the time of the remnant, when Zerubbabel was governor and Joshua was high priest, they led God's people. Uh, and Haggai and Zechariah counseled the people. But the Lord was looking for a physical place to dwell amongst his people. And today the Lord is still looking for a place to dwell amongst his people. We know that in the Old Testament times it was the tabernacle and the temple where uh, the Lord dwelt among his people. And today we know that we are the temple of God and he's looking for a spiritual dwelling in his church. So what's the background to this passage we read in Haggai? I think some of you may be familiar with this story, and it's found in the book of Ezra. But perhaps to the newer believers, I'll give you a little bit of brief background. You know, after the Israelites were taken into captivity for 70 years, they were in captivity in Babylon, and the Lord stirred up the king of Babylon, stirred up his spirit, and uh, this foreign king, Cyrus, uh, put forth a decree. Cyrus. Uh, um, His decree was that uh, the people, the captives of Judah, were to return to their homeland and to leave Babylon for Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, This in itself, I think, is a miracle that a foreign king would allow his captives and slaves to all return and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And we know that according to this decree, all of God's people were invited to go up to the promised land. But sadly, only a small fraction of people went. You know, Ezra chapter 2, 64 tells us that the congregation who went up to Jerusalem consisted of 42,360 people. Less than 50,000 went back. Now, if we were to assume that the nation that was taken into captivity numbered in the millions at that time and had only grown 
in those 70 years. I'm estimating that this remnant that returned to Jerusalem probably um, numbered less than 1% the total nation. Only one person out of a hundred decided to go back and rebuild the Lord's house. So in an audience of 300 people, that's three people. The other 99 out of a hundred chose to stay in Babylon. You know, you can imagine the sad state of God's people at that time. Even the heart of a foreign king who had who could care less about what was going on in the land of Judah, even a foreign king had his heart stirred up. And yet the hearts of the Lord's people failed to be stirred up. But what's miraculous is, even though this was an extremely small number of people, only 50,000, you know, they were faithful and they were zealous for the Lord. These people referred to as the remnant uh, wanted to do the recovery work of the Lord. They desired to see the temple rebuilt. And they wanted to see the return of the presence of the Lord. To me, there's a New Testament equivalent of this remnant. And it's found in Revelation chapter 3. When you look in verses 7 through 13, you find the church in Philadelphia. Now, when we consider the church in Philadelphia um, and how the believers there lived and walked, it says they were a church with a very little power. But even though they were small and they were weak, they were faithful. They were willing to be a testimony for the Lord, and because of this, the Lord loved them and protected them. And the remnant that returned to Judah was the same way. They were small in number. They possessed little power. And yet, in a short amount of time, we find from Ezra chapter 3 that the foundation was laid. In a short span of a few months, the foundation. And this fervency of the remnant was real when they first came back to Jerusalem. You find a description of these folks in Ezra chapter 2 and 3. Their testimony was indeed strong. It talks about how they offered freely of all they had for the house of God. It says they supported one another by sharing their money and food with those who laid the foundation. And then it speaks of how they gathered together as one man. Paul urges Timothy to lay a firm foundation and to take hold of that which is life indeed. I think a firm foundation leads to life. You know, this remnant, they laid a firm foundation physically, 
and then they also lived for the Lord and walked in life. And I can only imagine that this life was quite a thing to behold if you were there at that time. It's a small band of people, but they were so zealous for the Lord and so willing to build up the Lord's house. And this unity that's found in the body um, of those believers, of those remnants, uh, must have been quite a thing. This togetherness. And I think unity or this togetherness in the body or the assembly is a key trait whenever the testimony of the Lord is found. It you know, reminds me of the early church in Acts as well, right? Does it remind you of that? Uh, they were few in number, but they shared everything. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, it says, All that believed were together and had all things common. Uh, and we remember how when Peter stood up, the eleven stood up with him. They stood up together. The word together is found throughout Acts chapter 2. And I think this togetherness or unity exemplified that early church. They lived and they spoke and they gathered as one man, as one body. We know that they had a firm foundation and they lived out that life. And we know that their foundation was firm because when that shaking came, and certainly it came in the form of very horrible persecution. Um, we, knew, we know that when the persecution came, uh, the church only grew. It grew and it spread. And I think that's the sign of a firm foundation and deep roots. And it's a sign of life, resurrection life, because we see that life in, in the face of death. And I think the church in Philadelphia mentioned in Revelation also had a similar trait. You know, they might have been small with only a little bit of strength, but we know that Philadelphia means brotherly love. And we know that um, this remnant similarly had a testimony for the Lord. You know, they, when they were laying the foundation, uh, such unity and such oneness. And this certainly marked the beginning of the recovery work of the Lord. It seemed like the recovery work of the Lord was was being done during that time. Uh, so quickly when they returned, the foundation was laid. But very sadly, we know from the history of the remnant that this testimony only lasted for a short amount of time. We know from Ezra that the zeal of the remnant, though, though they were very zealous, uh, they were challenged with trial and persecution. Almost immediately after the foundation was laid, that persecution began to come. And in Ezra chapter 4, it talks about how 
these adversaries came and tried to cause trouble. Uh, we won't go into the details of this, but in chapter 4 it talks about how the people of the land came and weakened the hands of God's people. And they troubled them in their construction work. So I think we can learn from these lessons in history. Whenever God's work of recovery is being done, the enemy is going to come in to hinder, to discourage, to destroy, to delay. And whenever there's a fervency and a zeal to build God's house, we see this throughout church history. The enemy will always come to slow that work, to weaken our hands, to disrupt God's recovery. Um, in Ezra chapter 4 at the end um, we see that in verse 24 the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased you see that the foundation was laid and then the work ceased with all the difficulties, uh, they stopped building. It says here in this passage, from the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Um, end of chapter 4. Which verse? Maybe we'll just read this section. Um, Ezra 4.24 The work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. And if we continue reading it says when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So we see that they stopped building at the end of Ezra chapter 4 and then in Ezra chapter 5 they begin to rebuild. So we see that we know from history that this last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5 spanned a period of about 16 years. We know that the temple foundation was laid in roughly 536 BC and the second year of Darius's reign was 520 BC. So the foundation was laid, but construction on the Lord's house didn't happen for a decade and a half. So I want us to focus now on these 16 years. What happened during this time? Now Ezra doesn't give us any details between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. 
可是我们看历史我们知道当中有十六年那这十六年当中他们停止的这段时间发生了什么事呢 in verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. This was a stern warning to the remnant of Israel, and I think it's a stern warning to us today. During these 16 years, as the nation of Israel stopped working on God's house, they started working on their own houses. Their own purpose instead of the Lord's purpose. Their own will instead of the Lord's will. And they began to build up nice houses for themselves instead of working on God's house. You know, these ones from the remnant called out of Babylon for God's purpose. You know, they were full of zeal. They were ready to walk with the Lord in His purpose. But now that love began to grow cold or, or lukewarm at best. something that ever happens to us? You know, some of the new believers here might be able to tell you the zeal for the Lord in their hearts when they first came to know Him. When we're first captured by the Lord, what, what love, what first love, right? The fervency we had in loving our brothers and sisters. Perhaps a desire to see the body of Christ built up. But then we can see that over time this world can creep in and distract from the Lord's purpose. You know, at first it might be our education, then perhaps our careers, then our family. And our homes and our possessions become nicer. A lot of this can get in the way of first love. If we're not careful, it's easy for that church in Philadelphia to become the church in Laodicea. Just like that remnant. It's easy for us to quit and become lukewarm and complacent in spiritual things. We might say like the remnant in verse 2, uh, the time hasn't come yet to build, to rebuild the house of the it's not a good time in my life right now to work on things of God. I got to get my own things set and straight. In Revelation chapter 3, we're told that the church in Laodicea was characterized by their lukewarmness. 
And being lukewarm in spiritual things so displeased the Lord that he gave them a very stern warning. And you can read the details of that warning on your own. But we similarly see a scenario in these remnants, right? During this time of persecution, that remnant grew lukewarm to the things of God, to the things concerning his house. And what happens when we become lukewarm to the things of God? And we begin to focus on our own lives. We see the remnant building up their own homes. Perhaps their careers, their business, their families. These things may have been built up during that time, but they neglected the purpose of the Lord by which they were called out of Babylon for. And we know that that's when this message of Haggai comes. You know, I think many of us um, sitting here have a similar background. Perhaps many of you share similar stories. Many of us come to this country to pursue this quote-unquote American dream. We might have come to the United States or, or here to New York City to advance our careers, to grow our family to provide the best for our children. You know, or some of us may be children of those immigrants that came for that purpose. And now that I have a, my own family and I have four mouths to feed instead of just one, I can kind of appreciate this pursuit. Uh, but does my pursuit of my own career or my family or my home does that get in the way of the Lord's work? American dream get in the way of um, his will for my life? You know, I don't think his will is for us to attain the best education, to advance my career, to accumulate more wealth. I don't think his will is for me to buy a bigger house or a nicer car. I don't think his will is for my kids to get into Columbia or Harvard. Or even that gifted and talented elementary school. I think that might be this this immigrant dream or mentality that some of us may have. And I'm not saying it's wrong for us to want the best for our kids. But I, but I think we can become, or I should speak for myself, I think I can become very short-sighted if my emotion, my joy, my peace of mind is attached to these things. Uh, you know, this American dream is actually a, a pretty wonderful ideology. Right, we can come to this country without a dime in our pocket, and through hard work, we can become millionaires. There are a lot of American 
extreme stories like this, right? And a lot of New Yorkers have such a dream. And it probably doesn't help that we all live in really tiny apartments and we, we desire more space. It probably doesn't help that it's so expensive to live in the city that you don't have much savings at the end of the month. And my, my wife and I are finding out it, it also doesn't help that everyone around you has this mentality that they're trying to get their kids into the best schools, even at the elementary school level. The school system here, for those of you that don't know, is one in which you have to test into all of these private or even public schools. We see a lot of our friends, you know, they and colleagues, they stress about not only their own careers, but the future of their children as well. Now, I, my wife and I, we actually don't stress that much about our kids' future. We, we try our best to, to hand them over to the Lord. really driven for themselves and for their kids. But this American dream is such a worldly pursuit. Such a selfish reality. So easy to be caught up in ourselves and not the Lord. It will cause us to forget the Lord's eternal purpose for our lives. You know, do we become envious if our colleague gets promoted over us? Do we become envious if our neighbor has a nicer home or a nicer car? Or if our strive and work harder. You know, is it this American dream that drives us? You know, if you look at the remnant during those 16 years, they began to pursue their American dream. These paneled homes they built for themselves probably became bigger and nicer. We acquired more livestock, more crops, more And meanwhile, the house of the Lord had nothing but a foundation. In their complacency towards the things of the Lord, they began to build up their own comfort and security, or what they thought were comfort and security. These worldly pursuits became their joy and their peace of mind. But Haggai tells us that they had to toil for these things. And in their toil, did they ever really achieve that security? Can we achieve that security? Look at what happened in Houston and Florida. Possessions, cars, homes just wiped out in a matter of hours. Where where is that security? It didn't matter how nice your home was or how nice your car was, if you were in the wrong part of Houston, you were underwater. I think this mirage of the American dream, you know, it's just that, it's a mirage. It, we think it'll bring absolute peace and joy and security. Whenever I share with the younger people, I like to bring up 
uh, this wonderful document we have in this country called the Declaration of Independence. Because the Declaration of Independence promises all men three unalienable rights. Since the young people, I think, are, are upstairs, um, I'll tell you what they are because the older ones might have forgotten. <coughs> Life, liberty, and what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. The pursuit of happiness. Pursuit的Happiness是The in reality, it's something that's unattainable. It's a pursuit. It's unattainable, and in that pursuit, you can become very empty. If you ask the wealthiest people in this city whether they are satisfied or happy, you know what they'll tell you? You know, very few are actually happy. And I can be confident of this because um, during my short time in this city, I've encountered some of these people. You know, these people are still pursuing, they're still clawing, even though they have wealth more than what I'll earn my entire career. Some of these wealthiest stockbrokers who are some of the spouses of my colleagues. They live in some really amazing homes. They own amazing vacation homes. And their kids go to pretty amazing schools that cost more than what and yet they still yearn for more. They work 80 hours a week and they try to attain something that's impossible. And even in all their wealth, they, uh, their lives are just as empty and just as fruitless as, as, they, as it was when they probably first began that journey. I think this pursuit of happiness will destroy that first love and zeal in our hearts. pursuit of happiness will get in the way of the things of the Lord in building up His house and building up His church. We're not careful. The church in Philadelphia becomes the church in Laodicea. really evident throughout church history. You know, we're all aware of the Brethren movement that occurred in England in the 1800s. These men and women were were fervent for the Lord. They had a heavenly vision for God's purpose for His church. In fact, our fellowships have benefited much from the revelation given to them. And our meetings are even modeled after some of what they saw. But if you were to visit England today, you know, where are the descendants of those brothers and sisters? I actually didn't know the answer to this, so so I asked our brother Dana once, what what happened to to those people? And he can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, retelling this wrong, but he told me that uh, the generation of saints during that movement 
had much love for the Lord. And so did their children. Their children also loved the Lord. But their children became successful businessmen, successful lawyers, successful doctors. 可是他们的子孙呢有一些做了很成功的律师很成功的医生他们在职业里头很成功他们收集的钱财我们只能够服侍一个主不是两个主 of that brethren movement. In fact, the Lord's work, I think, then shifted to China and India and other places. And I think we need to learn this lesson, especially some of us younger ones. How Philadelphia becomes Laodicea. I think we need to learn uh, from these lessons. You know, the sad thing about the church in Laodicea is how they were also characterized by their deception. They thought they were wealthy and in need of nothing. And the Spirit of the Lord tells them they were in fact wretched, poor, blind, and naked. That's how deceived they were. And even though this remnant built up nice homes, it says, you know, you've sown much but harvest little, you eat, and there's not enough to be satisfied, you drink, but that's not enough, you have clothes, but you're not warm, and you earn into a purse with holes. And that's how they were deceived. Now we know the work of the enemy is to deceive us. To think that we can attain to a certain joy or happiness or security in this world. We even deceive ourselves into thinking, you know, once I establish my own career and family, then I've got time to serve the Lord. Then I'll put His will above mine. If we think that way, we are deceived. You know, it's so sad. The laying of the foundation was very quick. And even the building up of the house of the Lord afterwards was relatively quick. Only four or five years and the temple was rebuilt. Five years of building, but it took over twenty. You know, when the Lord um, sent Haggai, he didn't send Haggai alone, he sent Zechariah as well. And the words of Zechariah are, Return to me. The words of the Lord through Zechariah were, Return to me that I may return to you. You know, if we've fallen away from the Lord, there's a cry from the Heavenly Father that says, Return to me. The heart of the Father yearns for His children. Those of us who are parents can understand this. How we long to have a close and intimate relationship with our children. I don't think there's any time as parents that we don't care about what our children think of us. Uh, return to me that I may return to you. The church in Laodicea is also asked to repent. The word repent means to turn around. You know, 180 degree turn around and return to the Lord. 
The Lord pleads with the church in Laodicea, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. This is the cry of the prophets to the remnant during uh, 500 BC in Jerusalem. And I think it's the cry of the Holy Spirit to our hearts today. We need to turn from our worldly pursuits and we need to, like Paul writes Timothy, take hold of that which is life indeed. So hopefully we learn to heed the cry of the Spirit today. These are some of the words I humbly submit before you. It's, it's what the Lord has been showing me in my own life. So, so really these are words spoken to to my heart. These are lessons that I'm learning in my life. And so hopefully there have encouragement. Um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us and you want to dwell in our midst. Lord, we know that um, there is a battle and spiritual warfare going on. And we know that what is at stake is your testimony. A testimony that you are our God and we are your people. So Lord, I pray that you strengthen our hands so that we can have a firm foundation and that we build upon that foundation the things that are gold, silver, and precious stones. 